Hello, and welcome to The Home for Anime, Collector's Edition. With The Home for Anime, Collector's Edition, I plan to look into the different aspects of what goes into anime collecting, so collecting Blu-rays, DVDs, VHS tapes, and what is it that makes it so desirable? And to do this, I have collected a number of guests and the first guest that I have, I am extremely happy and proud to have, and that is Dr. Peter Alalunis, who is a professor at the University of Oregon. He's the author of the book, Smutty Little Movies, The Creation and Regulation of Adult Video. He's currently working on a new book titled Porn 1.0, Tracing History of How Pornography Went Online in the Pre-Internet Era. That sound about right to you, Peter. Yeah, that's right. It's a pleasure to be here. Very happy to be here, Cameron. I am so happy to have you here. Thank you so much. How are you doing today, my friend? I'm doing great. Yeah, it's a beautiful day. <laughs> that three-hour time difference means nothing to us. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in Oregon, and it, it, I'm looking out my window right now, actually, and um, it's just a beautiful day, which is not all that common in Oregon this time of year, so I'm happy. Well, let me tell you, the day is about to get even more beautiful as we talk about a combination of streaming and DVDs, VHS, anime, and of course, pornography. Because you and I's <laughs> research actually blends in together quite well. Like it's starkly different yet eerily similar. And so today, what we're going to be talking about is platform ideology and what makes collecting physical media, which again, in my case, would be anime, so appealing when we have all of these different streaming services. I know that streaming, as seen in the article, Approaching Media Studies Comparatively, a case study of streaming from Daniel Herbert, Amanda Lotz, and Lee Marshall, that streaming basically started in the 1990s. And that is pretty early internet, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, you know, first of all, in the interests of full disclosure, Dan Herbert was my dissertation advisor at the oh, University nice. of Michigan. So I, I know Dan, obviously I know him extremely well. We're very good friends and we were, he was my advisor in graduate school. Um, and Amanda as well was some, is somebody that I know pretty well and I know their work pretty well. And so, I, you know, th th this is a very good combination of historical research and analysis, which is exactly what you'd expect from those two. Mm -hmm. It's a very awesome scholars. Very cool. For me, the early roots of streaming are fascinating because the adult film industry, as with many technologies, was really at the foreground of developing and experimenting with, and then most importantly, monetizing those technologies. So if you look at the historical roots of streaming video online, it's not going to take you very long before you end up seeing examples of sexually explicit media fully taking advantage of those technologies and then and then absolutely monetizing it. There were companies in the 90s, Seth Warshawski's company IEG comes to mind, which I think was headquartered in Seattle. Um that pioneered some of these technologies and would actually have these little studio rooms 
where dancers would perform live and people would pay quite a bit of money at the time to have live feeds of this over the internet, which is spectacular to think about today because we take that completely for granted now. But at the time that would have been, I mean, cutting edge is an understatement. It would have been, you would have thought you were on the Star Trek Enterprise or something. If you, <laughs> if you were one of the earliest people to use that technology, it would have been, it would have been mind blowing. You know, and the thing about that, actually, and I believe you and I have actually talked about this a little bit in one of our prior meetings, the beginning of streaming for anime didn't really start until the late 90s to early 2000s. The way that anime came to be popularized in the West is via VHS tapes that just kind of got circulated around different fans. I think the biggest example of a breakthrough for streaming for anime came with the streaming platform Crunchyroll, which just, it's, it's interesting, it's fascinating to know that streaming has been going on for such a long time, and it just kind of points me to how the early internet leads to what it is that we know now. You know, the early internet is an endlessly fascinating place to me. I tend to think of the internet as having some distinct phases. We use that word now kind of ubiquitously to refer to something maybe different than what it was originally used for. Um, the, the earlier usages of the word kind of refer to the hardware, right? It's like a network of interconnected computers, different places. Started out having a military function, but very quickly grew into an academic function. It was early colleges in Stanford and whatnot that connected their computers, something called the ARPANET. Mm -hmm. um, today, we think of the internet as a sort of process by which we engage culturally with the world. I mean, it's not really even about entertainment anymore. It's about literally everything that we do. When I think about kids now, like my own, I have an 11 year old and my 11 year old would be very baffled by our conversation. He would be like, what are you even talking about? The internet. He would just be like, do you mean like all the things I use in my life from the, there's a device in the kitchen that I ask to set a timer when I make lunch, do you mean that? Or do you mean my television set that I can speak into the remote and it finds me my show? Or do you mean the box in my room that I text with my friends on? I mean, like it's, it's such a ubiqu like a huge part of our life now, but mm -hmm. I think there's these phases of time. And one of those phases of time that's the most interesting to me as a historian is the one right before the one that we think of now. <laughs> and that's the one where people who were essentially fans learned how to use the thing. Right. This is like any cool new technology. There's a moment where you have to have people who are really, really um, familiar with the technology and willing to invest the time and, and energy and expertise to use it. 
And then that excludes everyone else from using it. And so you have this small group of very passionate people who know really well how to use the thing. <laughs> and that's really similar to any fan community of any kind. And I'm sure you know this from anime. Right. There's these hyper dedicated, devoted people who are the gatekeepers of the innermost sanctum of the item. And that's essentially everybody on the early internet. So it's really amazing to me to study that time period where you, you couldn't, like today, anybody can pick up a phone and use the quote unquote internet, my mother. <laughs> but but in, in this period that we're talking about, forget it. Forget it. I, you, you not, the average person could not participate. And so that's the moment where you have this exchange of items between people for, for purposes other than their intended use. And this is what I'm getting at is that pornography, just to go back to my own research, mm -hmm. in that particular moment, sometimes it was actually less about the pornography and more about the technology the pleasure was not in exchanging nude images scanned from Playboy magazine. The pleasure was actually in exchanging them digitally. And so it really wasn't about like, oh, I got this amazing 1982 centerfold. Have you seen it? No. This was about, hey, I used the new XT11 modem. <laughs> and I'm so excited to tell you how the, the baud rate, you know. And the pornography was secondary. So, and then going back to this article, it's so surreal. I mean, streaming is basically collecting these different titles, these things that we can watch in real time over what we now have as the internet, what we had as the internet in the 90s. And as of right now, it's, it's overtaken the home video market. In 2016, streaming services earned $6.2 billion and physical media dropped to 5.4. But that leads me, because of what you just said about the technology, it leads me to the question of accessibility. If we, you and I, you know, we're younger, relatively, we, like you said, we know more about these certain technologies even though anybody can use them but it's it's still it doesn't seem like it's for everybody even though it's for everybody and if you don't get on board with the streaming like what i'm researching you get on board with buying blu-rays dvds vhs's which vhs's are still very hot so that question of accessibility just based off of what you said with the technologies, I mean, computers, phones, how do we buy these different titles? How do we stream these different shows and movies? And especially if I were to tell you the cost of just these regular streaming services that I use for anime, like, Funimation being a little over $6, Netflix being 13 High Dive and Retro Crush being 5 and Crunchyroll being 10 I could watch so much anime a month from that. Or, you know, just pirate it, but we don't talk about that. 
Or I could buy a really good Blu-ray player and one title, and that would overtake the amount of money that it would take for me to get all those streaming services. Like, it would take me months of streaming services to catch up to that one good Blu-ray player and that title. Yeah, you know, you you, you raised so many interesting points here, and my brain is pinballing around but i'll i'll, I'll try oh, to I'm touch sorry. on a few th- no no it's good this is good i feel like totally invigorated and I, I i have like four or five interesting routes we could go here's one talking about the cost of things and what that does to culture so in 1975 well let's say 76 when you could actually go to the store and purchase a box that would allow you to play an adult movie in your house. Now, keep in mind, this existed prior to that. You could do that prior to 1976 with other technologies, but they were a little hard to find, and the average person might not be willing to take the time. But starting in 1976, the average person could go to the store, purchase a box, you could play a movie at home, And then if you were willing to put in a little bit of time and effort, you could find a a sexually explicit movie on a tape, on a cassette, that you could do that at home. That tape in 1976 would have cost you over $100. Oh, my goodness. And that's in 1976 dollars. So I don't have an inflation calculator right here in front of me, but... um, in today's dollars, that's considerably more than a hundred dollars. And that's just for the tape. The box is another few hundred dollars at least may probably more, probably a lot more. And so you're taught. Yeah. In fact, it would be, it'd be, it'd be well over $500, maybe over $700 for the box. So to purchase the box and one cassette would be so dramatically out of reach for the average person. Now, contrast that to today, 2022, where, you know, you the average person now is well within reach of the internet in some way, in some way, and is easily within reach of the most pornography that has ever existed on planet Earth ever. We are in a moment in 2022 where more pornography is accessible than at any point in human history of this planet. And it might not be quite as much as people think. When I say that, it sounds like it's like trillions and quadrillions of things. But it's a lot. And so just in our lifetime, in my lifetime, you can see a difference between totally inaccessible and totally accessible. Now, that is staggering. I don't think we even comprehend yet as a species the impact that has had on human development, human behavior, human culture, whatever you want to say, however you want to describe it. Um, and I think that that same pattern can be transposed onto anything. And so any any cultural item. So for you as a collector of anime, it's the same. In 19, 1976 or 1986 or 1996, to build a collection would have been time-consuming and expensive. But in 2022, especially if you want to factor in the thing we won't talk about, the piracy, <laughs> you can have a world-class elite archive of whatever you want, quickly, relatively affordably, and efficiently 
Right. Which is stunning. It's truly stunning. What does it mean, though? Like, does it do people devalue the objects? What do you think? Do you, in your experience, does the community devalue anime now? So, life itself is expensive. And on top of that, and this is something else that Herbert Lotz and Marshall get into, and that's the fact that we have these television, especially television, which is, you know, well, a lot of what anime is, uh, television shows, with limited commercials if you use streaming services or no commercials. One, anime fans are anime fans, you know, all around the world. And anime is slowly but surely becoming more mainstream. I think I don't think people devalue anime, but what I think happens is life is expensive, you know? We... As we're getting older, we have more and more responsibilities. I mean, there are definitely anime fans in their 40s and 50s, but a lot of them are the emerging young people in their teens and 20s and 30s, like me, you know, in the 20s age range. So if you don't have the means to partake in buying all these streaming services or putting in an exorbitant amount of money into this collection, even though, you know, we say it's that thing we won't talk about, it's becoming more and more commonplace for people to say, I don't blame you if you do. And that doesn't detract from you being a fan. It doesn't, like they say in the article, it doesn't, you know, make binging any less of a behavioral thing. People are going to binge. People are going to indulge in these different pieces of media because any way that they're available and in any means that someone can get them, that's what is going to happen. They're just going to... They're going to get it how they can get it, basically. Yeah, you know, I, I suspect that anime... And anime has something else in common with adult films, which is that there's still a segment of those two things, probably more than a segment. I'm guessing it's probably a lot that are not easily accessible or available widely to large groups of people, which necessitates still a collector's market that is kind of exclusive, hard to access has limited entry and barriers to entry. Adult film is still a place where there are thousands of titles that are not that well known, but are very desirable to collectors. And so you have boutique distribution labels. And I know this is something you're interested in that we've mm -hmm. talked about and that mm -hmm. I've seen you ask about, which is physical media. There are these boutique distributors now that specialize in selling these things and for just one example the company vinegar syndrome which is headed by a good friend of mine they this is their specialty is they 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 attain the rights to 35 millimeter adult films make high quality 4k scans and then sell physical media of these they also distribute um, DLP, DCP, is it, I think it's called DCP, to theaters to play these films. Um, 
that way as well. But and I think that's probably similar to anime is that there's these boutique companies that still sell that physical media. And so what I have seen in the last few years, like let's say the last 10 years, is this surge in interest in still owning physical media. Yes. As a as a sort of a, a rebellious act to be like, yes, those streaming services exist, but you know, viva la physical media. <laughs> And I, I, you know, I, I am part of this. I have a massive collection of physical media that I celebrate and I adore it. Um, but I'm fascinated by the culture around that as a deliberate act of being like, well, this, uh, this is forever, even though it's not. The Blu-ray discs have a shelf life. Yeah, which is actually, this is, this kind of goes into the second article Beyond Streaming Wars, Rethinking Competition in Video Services by Roman Lobato and Amanda Lotz again. So basically, we have these kind of streaming wars, and this exists between platforms like Netflix, Prime Video, Hulu, all of those. And of course, the platforms that I listed earlier, so Crunchyroll, Funimation, Retro Crush, High Dive, those different types of companies. And I think one of the things that sets it apart is that not many companies, one, stream the same thing. So the competition aspect, you know, they're they're all competing for your attention. But they also have, especially with the anime companies, they are streaming services, but they also, a lot of them double as boutiques. So High Dive is owned by Sentai Filmworks. Crunchyroll is a part of Funimation. They're both owned by Sony. But Crunchyroll also works with a company called Viz Media to release some Blu-rays. But they work with Funimation for most of them. And then you have a retro anime company, called Retro Crush, who they stream mostly retro titles. But they work with Discotech Media, who, and this is this is what I'm getting at, to go to your point, the shelf life. They sell Blu-rays and DVDs, but if you buy a Blu-ray from Discotech Media, they have these things called sizzle reels. And in the sizzle reel, they'll put up different shows and movies that they're working on licensing that they're working on restoring because what they do is you know they restore older titles and they'll put it over some you know nice 80s music and just show you everything they're working on so like i had a copy of project echo they showed off project echo lupon the third city hunter and at the end of the reel it said Blu-rays are forever. And then immediately after, it gave the shelf life for a Blu-ray disc, which is 100 to 150 years. Yeah, isn't it interesting? But that is forever. like For us, to, that, for a, right, a human right. being, that is forever. Right. That's the most interesting part is that in our feeble human mind, that does feel like forever, even though film history now is old enough to show that isn't forever and so many things are lost 
they're just completely lost. I teach classes all the time about early exploitation movies that we only have references to or a few f- images from or program guides for. Um, the The streaming services is really interesting to me because I think the average consumer doesn't fully grasp how they work. And that's not the, that's not the job of the average consumer. The average consumer just wants to be able to press one button and watch the movie. Right. But the streaming companies operate under licensing agreements and they're all competing for similar licensing agreements. Yes. Those, those agreements have contractual limitations so you might only have the right to show the move show the movie for a year or two years right and then they 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 leave the service and it's become a big mystery to people like you if you google like what's new on netflix this month there's a whole cottage industry of websites devoted to what's coming and going on streaming services as if as if that's normal now like it's normal we don't question it it's like oh that's just a thing um but what's fascinating is that this whole ecosystem of streaming, which Netflix sort of smashed the wall down and then has galloped out to the lead, is that Netflix Netflix built their streaming service on the backs of all the other studios. They licensed films from everyone else to put on their streaming service. And those companies were like, well, this is literal garbage. We'll just throw this on to Netflix and then it's not going to go anywhere. It's not going to be a success. Who cares? We'll squeeze a few pennies out of, you know, out of this. Only to realize later what a catastrophic mistake that was. They literally gave their products to their competitor to build the most powerful streaming service on earth. An empire. Right. And now, and then, and then when it, once it was too late, they took all those things back. Like, for example, NBC licensed The Office to Netflix, which Netflix used to build a colossal global infrastructure, many hundreds of millions of streaming minutes of that show. And then when that license expired, (laughs) NBC was like, oh, God, okay, we can do we can use this now to build our own thing. And so we see that left, right, and center now. Every company, in fact, just yesterday, CBS Viacom had a big presentation where they were like, we're rebranding as Paramount, and we're building that all around Paramount Plus, our streaming service. Um, so, you know, we have we have a whole landscape now of these services. And then that makes me think, not to go too much into a tangent, but... You know, this is all going in a direction, which is to say the same direction cable TV went in. You can't have an ecosystem with 400 different streaming services you have to pay a monthly fee for. Eventually, they will bundle together and you'll pay one fee to have a bunch of them. And that will be just like how cable <laughs> TV worked. Um, they they hate that idea, but it's where it's all going. It has to. I agree with you especially i mean it's so funny that you bring up the office because in my notes i was going to bring up friends and how hbo took friends yeah same thing same same uh same idea and something that i think would go really well with that i was talking to my advisor before we had this meeting he was explaining to me 
what planned obsolescence and temporality were. And they both seem to fit pretty well with streaming platform ideologies in the fact that, like you said, maybe they hold a license for a year, two years. And one of, one of the articles actually states that, you know, they'll put out something that, you know, maybe isn't doing as well. But the thing is, how do you, as we as researchers, we don't always have the means to get that information, but it's kind of like with planned obsolescence, it's kind of like, you know, you buy a phone, but the developer of the phone only means for you to have it for two or three years because they're steady working on the next one. So it's like, you know, you have these shows, but how long do you have them? And is that, is that business strategy on the streaming platform or on the licensor of the show, you know, the creators? It's so funny that we kind of see that planned obsolescence with DVDs and Blu-rays and VHS. I mean, I know a lot of people who collect VHS and on Instagram, especially, they'll post pictures of, you know, them watching a certain film or show on, say, a CRT screen because, you know, it's the hip thing to do. You know, would that band say hip to be square? But if you try to look for a specific title on DVD because it hasn't made its way to Blu-ray, you are looking at paying a hefty fine, but a distributor is still making them. Like Funimation licensed one of my favorite anime of all time, Haibane Renme, that came out in 2002. A couple years ago, I was looking for a Blu-ray copy of it and I couldn't find it. And I saw that there was a DVD copy out and the DVD copy was like a hundred dollars. And then a year later they say, Oh, guess what? We're releasing Haibane Renme on Blu-ray for, I believe it was $30. And I was so mad, but that's the planned obsolescence. They're selling it for more because they know that there are people who are going to collect it. There are people who love these shows enough to do it and I mean and sorry I'm going on a tangent now but if we go a step further just talking about licensing there's a very popular show on Netflix called Violet Evergarden that was a Netflix original series so the anime was held by Netflix for the longest time and after two or three years on the platform, Netflix, who typically does not let their titles go for physical release, actually struck a deal with Funimation to release Violet Evergarden on Blu-ray and DVD, and they even gave it a limited release edition, which, wow, that is so rare. Like, that is how much of a moneymaker Violet Evergarden must be and the limited edition sold out so quick that if you try to buy a copy on eBay now you could pay maybe $1,500 
people know how popular that show is and they know that that temporality is a thing you know you you missed it you can either watch it via the internet or you can have it in your hands you know the dream of every capitalist enterprise there's two dreams one is unattainable and one has become attainable the unattainable dream of every capitalist enterprise is to make people pay for something that doesn't exist <laughs> you just want to get money for nothing right if you can just make people pay you for literally nothing then you've achieved capitalist perfection now that's on that's mostly unattainable there are things in this culture that feel that way but what is attainable is this dream make people pay for something over and over and over again without changing it and so it might on the surface seem like streaming has changed the game for planned obsolescence because for many years planned obsolescence was amazing for hollywood studios they could be like you pay once to see the movie in the theater then you pay again to own it on vhs then you pay again to own it on dvd then you pay again to own it on blu-ray then you pay again to own it on 4k amazing <laughs> right it's funny because it's true Right. But then streaming happens and there's this illusion that like, oh, now I don't have to pay anymore for the movie. But you know what? You actually do because you pay every month. You pay every month for the movie forever. And that is like the second level capitalist dream. First level capitalist dream is pay for nothing. Second level dream is pay again and again and again and again and again with no changes. And that's what streaming is. You pay every single month to have access to the same thing every single month. You don't pay once and unlock the front door of Netflix. You pay every month to unlock the door to Netflix. So there's like a real capitalist dream to this because it actually kind of eliminates planned obsolescence altogether. Unless, unless Netflix starts making laptops or hardware. You know, these tech companies always think they're going to sell hardware to you. Um, because then that's where they can have that conventional planned obsolescence model. Now, the other layer to this, though, is that for some of these streaming services, the content is completely secondary. Say, take, for example, Amazon. Amazon does not really care what's in their streaming service. They only really care about selling Prime memberships. And they only really care about selling Prime memberships so people will buy diapers or napkins <laughs> or, or detergent or cereal or all the things that they can ship to you. It's the same model as the grocery store or the department store 150 years ago where you walk in the front door and they want you to buy as much stuff as possible in the store so they put the milk in the back corner. Amazon just has a streaming service to get people to buy shoes. They've admitted this. This is not even me being paranoid. The, all of the vice presidents and presidents of Amazon have been very transparent about this. They really don't care about what they're putting on that streamer as long as it gets people's eyeballs to Amazon.com. That, that's semi-unique to them. But the other services like, say, HBO Max are totally beholden 
to Wall Street. And whatever people are willing to invest in for the stock price is what HBO Max and Warner Brothers and now Discovery, which owns all of them, will do. And so right now the hot thing is streaming. And so that's what they're putting all of their time and resources. And they're investing rapidly for the stock price. Now those things I just described are somewhat different from, say, these boutique labels that are trying to scratch out, uh, you know, success. And like, for example, I know your I know your listeners can't see this. We're it's the we're on the radio here, right? But <laughs> but like here, for example, here is an example of um, a boutique DVD. This I'm holding up the Monster Ooh. of Camp Sunshine. Yeah, that's sick. Which, which is a very old exploitation movie with beautiful new packaging from the American genre film archive, which is an offshoot of the Alamo draft house company. And they put out these beautiful packaged, packaged exploitation movies. This is not Amazon. They're not trying to get me to buy shoes. This is a labor of love. Nevertheless, um, this is closer to what you're saying because they can put this out again in 4K or 8K or 16K or Platinum K and I'll probably buy it again. Let's be honest. <laughs> There's another article that I found from Business Insider. Uh, streaming may be everywhere, but DVDs are far from dead. Here's why collectors stock up on thousands of physical discs even as film goes digital. They, they break down things like um, having special features and kind of like what we've been talking about this whole time assurance that you'll always have access to your favorite movies and shows and you know with blu-ray 4k that we've been talking about you have the higher bit rate you have things that just look better than what they would look like on streaming and Special features, interviews, all of that. No, nothing is, no two things are the same. And I, it's just so cool to think that, you know, even with planned obsolescence that we've been talking about with, with everything and shelf life, unfortunately, that these things, even though they are going one day, at least today and this is what's so incredible today we're having a conversation because it's still relevant betamax was 50 years ago right and here we are talking about blu-ray the home video market even though it's on a decline it's still going strong the beauty of the physical media is that it allows you to fully own something and I think people forget this, that there's, there, there's some protection, some copyright protections for you as a consumer if you own physical media. I encourage everyone out there listening to Google the phrase first sale doctrine to understand what I'm talking about. You, if you own your copy of a movie, you can do things with it that you cannot in other formats. And one of those things, the most simple one of all, is you can just watch it anytime you want. Stream, streaming does not actually afford you that right. You cannot watch it anytime you want because the license might expire. Your internet company might have a cap on how, many, how, how much you can use every month. Um, 
other challenges might present themselves to you. So I love owning my own physical media because that just means I can control how, when, and where I watch it. So the tiny little boutique label, for example, there's a new company in Canada that's releasing very high quality scans with beautiful packaging on Blu-ray of important Canadian films. And I think they own the rights to about three films right now. Well, that's very hyper-specifically caring about those films. Mm-hmm. That's a passion project. Right. So the farther we scale down, the more important that becomes. The farther we scale up, the less important it becomes. I think that's really interesting. But Peter, uh, is there anything that you would like to say about the the work that you and I are doing about collecting physical media? Any closing thoughts? Yeah, you know, something I kept meaning to come back to in this conversation and never did was the the insidious practice that I think is out there with digital technology, which is not only preventing people from owning something, paying a monthly fee to stream something means you own nothing. But it goes even deeper than that, which is that in music, especially when you purchase quote unquote, the digital rights to something, you don't even own it then you have licensed the temporary rights to stream that object. So if you think you're purchasing a digital download of something, you actually aren't. You're just purchasing the licensing rights for as long as that company has the option to provide it to you, which to me is even more insidious. It's like, it's like negative ownership. Digital licensing rights are, they're truly insidious. And I think for the most part, people have no idea about this because who has time to read fine print of agreements you saw, you click, you know, but I think those are disgusting. So, um, yes, long live physical media, long live collections. Um, I love physical media forever now and forever. Yep. Rather pay that $100 for high than a another hundred dollars for a Blu-ray player. You got it. Yep. Absolutely agree. Well, Peter, this has been so much fun. I really yeah. appreciate you coming on. You got and it. And again, Dr. Peter Alalunis, his book, Smutty Little Movies, The Creation and Regulation of Adult Video, is out now. And I am really looking forward to hearing what happens with your book, Porn 1.0. Thanks, Cameron. I really appreciate it. Pleasure yes. talking to you. Same to you, my friend. This has been the Home for Anime Collector's Edition. I have been your host, Cameron Allison, and thank you for listening.